apropos of nothing, it was Alexandra who once told me, I think it was sometime last year, I don't know why she did this. She had a bit of time in her hands and she looked up, um, bottom line, she found out that I've done, I don't know, I've done 60 or more uh, Learners Exchange Talks over the decade. And uh, I, I suddenly figured out that um, the idea is that if we keep letting him do this, he'll get it right one of these times. That's... Um, Oh, that, that's, yeah, right. Um, right, get right, get right down to it. In front of you, um, just a little bit of Luke's gospel there. It's not the greatest photocopying. Uh, playing the photocopier outfit in Carisdale, you probably know the one I referred to. Um, so to, this morning, I just want to spend some time with you together looking at, um, as announced, um, the Transfiguration story which is uh, in front of you again, Luke 9. The version um, found in the Gospel of Luke starts at verse 28 there, runs through um, to verse 36. Um, looking at is a, a nice metaphor. Looking at or pondering. I don't know what word you like to use when you, you uh, read, attend to Scripture by yourself or in a group. Or thinking about this passage, that's what we'll do together. Looking at, pondering, thinking about Luke, uh, Luke's version of the transfiguration story. And then um, along the way, asking um, in no particular order what it is here, if you can ask a question like this, what are we in fact looking at when we look at a passage like this? Uh, how to seek benefit by looking at uh, a passage like this. What are we doing when we ponder such a thing as uh, the Transfiguration story in one of the Gospels today, again, from Luke? Um, a lot of people in our culture might think it's strange for a bunch of apparently grown-up folks um, like ourselves looking fairly normal and awake after some coffee. Why do they spend time looking at a story about this kind of, our culture might call it a weird story. You know? Why do we do this? But that we, are, we are indeed going to do it without apology. Um, we, we think it's an important thing to do, to look at, and here let me turn to prayer. We're going to look, Lord, at the transfiguration of indeed you, Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, in your name, we ask that you would teach us this morning. You are our teacher and our Lord, to open the eyes of our hearts that we may see wonderful things in your word. God, be with us today. Open our eyes indeed to see what you would have us see this morning in your holy word. Amen. So, to the story. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. 
And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Luke's Gospel, the Transfiguration story. There it is. What can you say about this? You've heard this a thousand times before. We know it so well. Attend, says Paul, attend to the public reading of Scripture. So Scripture commands us. So we've just performed an obedience, haven't we, together as the people of God. Attend to the public reading of Scripture. And we've done that this morning. So that's all we need to do. Right? <laughs> there is a simple obedience. And it's called for in the life of the church. We attend to the public reading of scripture. Scripture, of course, uh, without controversy, surely, maybe it can be fine-tuned a bit. But I'll make some assertions uh, about scripture. Scripture is is a, or perhaps Protestants would be more inclined to say, the witness to Jesus Christ. What he, Jesus Christ, is, what Jesus Christ does, is the supreme interest of the church and of the Christian. All men so far, I trust. Remember Jesus Christ, says Paul to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David, as declared in my gospel. Again, says the mighty apostle to the Gentiles. The New Testament is, uh, John Webster speaks like this, the great John Webster, alas, the, um, passed away a few uh, a couple of years ago. The New Testament is the domain or the sphere. It is the place of the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ. That's what Scripture, it's New Testament specifically, is. It's the place where the apostolic witness to Jesus is remembered. That's It uh, couldn't be more simple, I think. Jesus, specifically, Paul reminds Timothy, I think that's a weighty thing to ponder. Jesus, not just Jesus, if you will, but Jesus descended from David. That is to say, he is Israel's Messiah. Jesus lives, his meaning is in the mystery of Israel's life. Um, not, not anywhere else do we uh, understand Jesus. That's his place in the mystery of Israel. Remember Jesus Christ descended from David. As declared in my gospel, says, people, uh, says Paul, Israel's Messiah. As such, Holy Scripture, this place of the apostolic witness, is obviously, it's a form of knowledge, isn't it? We've just read a passage of, of words. It means to communicate knowledge to us. It's a form of knowledge, 
And it's a form of knowledge in the church called, not in the academy necessarily, not in schools of religion, for instance, but in the mystery of the church, it is called revelation. It's a form of knowledge called revelation. And, um, and a very specific form of knowledge is revelation. Revelation, says uh, the same theologian John Webster, I'm leaning on him a lot today for help. <laughs> he doesn't anywhere, as far as I know, write about the transfiguration, but I'm taking some of his ideas and hopefully appropriately applying them around and with this passage of Scripture. Revelation is the eloquence. I love this sentence from John Webster. He writes weighty theological sentences, sometimes very simply, sometimes not very simply. Revelation is the eloquence of divine action. That's why I have the word not very eloquently written up there, eloquence. That's a left-hander getting old and trying to write and for public uh, viewing. Revelation is the eloquence of divine action. Sort of a watchword for my talk today. So again, let us attend to, ponder, think about this divine action that we've just read about. We can call it that, surely, a divine action. We couldn't do the transfiguration. It's a divine action. And attend to the eloquence before, by which, in which it is set before us this morning and that we have read together. Attend to the public reading of scripture, says Paul. Here is an eloquence about a divine action which is revelation to us. Very specific form, again, of knowledge. Everything I've said so far, I think, is Bible, Christian, Christian tradition, common sense. But it's good to attend to what we know, make it clear, if, if you will. Revelation is the eloquence of divine action. So you might want to um, ha have the passage in front of you again. Jesus, with, um, again, just entering into this, what our theologian teacher uh, has called a divine action. Jesus, with Peter, John, and James... Obviously, uh, from the rest of uh, Holy Scripture, we know certainly the Gospels, they're an inner circle. They're frequently mentioned, aren't they, as very close to Jesus. Always surrounded by witnesses, Jesus, almost always. Few places in Scripture where there aren't witnesses immediately with him, but they're very rare. Jesus has this inner circle around him, and they went up, says Luke, on a mountain, on a mountain to pray. They apparently enter what I guess we would call what a hill country. I've never been to the um, uh, the Holy Land, to Palestine, but I think there aren't big mountains there, are there? Anybody here been there and said, "Oh no, I saw a big mountain"? There's. I'm sorry. They're big on a bike. There you go. There you go. So there's a on a mountain, a hill country. They go there. A real place, obviously, in our world, this hill country in Palestine. It's there. I guess you can probably go and guess where it was. Some of you uh, 
geography people about the Holy Land could tell me, maybe they know, they can guess where this was, where this happened. And there, Luke says, as he prayed, Jesus was changed. You notice here. His face is altered. His clothing, Luke says, became dazzling white. There you go. Without elaboration, he just says this. Um, there you go. His face altered. Don't know what, does your imagination start to work when you read scripture? I need instruction about that, maybe from poets, from wise readers of scripture. His face altered. His face altered. Um, his clothing become dazzling white. This drama, as you know, is found in Matthew, Mark, as well as in Luke. It's in uh, all three, as they're called, the Synoptic Gospels. But that's by way of saying Luke alone, again, you know these things. Luke alone mentions that it hap- this transfiguration moment happens as he prayed. It's not mentioned the other recordings of the transfiguration story. As he prayed, Luke says. Prayer is apparently a meeting place with many possibilities. Maybe that's why Luke mentions this detail, that the others decide for their own reason not to remember. In the remembering traditions that put together the Gospels, if you will, people wrote them. This particular moment of prayer is remembered by Luke. Uh, Prayer. It happened as he prayed. How how intense, if you will, must have been our Lord's prayer life as he prayed. Prayer, this meeting place. And behold, Luke says, um, apparently this is a kind of a rhetoric of wonder. And how appropriate uh, for this story. A rhetoric, perhaps, of announcement. Whatever rhetoricians might uh, call this sort of moment when a writer will say something like, and behold, real attention is called for, and behold, uh, rhetoric of wonder. Moses and Elijah, says Luke, speak with this altered one, Jesus, who again, his clothing is ablaze with light. Isn't that amazing? You just want to go slow as you read scripture, don't you? Just ponder it, think about it. Just note the facts with real attention. There it is. This altered one meets with Moses and Elijah. And then Luke says, it's a sparse uh, uh, passage, isn't it? There isn't too much elaboration. No theorizing here, if you will. These conversing ones uh, speak about our Lord's departure, as it says here. Um, The footnote, uh, the little note at the bottom of of the passage uh, in front of you, tells us that literally this means his exodus. The Lord's departure, the Lord's exodus. His death is approaching. And these two from the distant past, Moses and Elijah, speak to Jesus about his his approaching death as they appear in glory as his face is altered 
and his clothing is ablaze with light. Divine action indeed. Just, just think about it. Holy Scripture puts this in front of us. His exodus. They appear in glory. Again, these two from the distant um, past. Peter, James, Peter, John, and James saw their friend and leader changed here. They're called upon to be with him in this hill country and to witness this. And they saw in glory at the same time, Luke tells us, Moses and Elijah. I just want to, again, do you enjoy going just slow and looking at what's in front of you here? Like stopping a movie frame and saying, wow, that's worth looking at for a long while. Simple. I, it's obviously a simple story. Would you agree? I don't think there'd be too much disagreement. It's simple in its, in, its, in its presentation. I also find in its simplicity, do you, uh, I find it beautiful. Scripture is often beautiful. Often it has an eloquence about it. Uh, it's, I find it's compelling and it's beautiful. Um, divine action, again, as the theologian would have it, would describe it for us, our brother in Christ who in the church has a ministry of uh, thinking about Scripture and its meaning. He, theologians do do a bit of uh, theorizing about the, the bare text of Scripture. They know they're theorizing. They would tell you a good theologian like John Webster, stay close to Scripture. Don't make the, the, my discourse first. Scripture's always first. Always Scripture. Scripture. Always Scripture. It's simple. It's beautiful witness is always first. Always. And, of course, the divine action with witnesses called to witness the action. This is the way revelation happens. Divine action. Witnesses called to watch it. And this in turn, again, pointing out the super obvious. I'm not being simple and obvious today. This takes a written form. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it to read together today. So we're, we're plugged right in. We're right into this story at this point. Though apostolic witness to the divine action takes a written form. So it's in front of us today. And so the apostle says, make sure you attend to the public reading of this. It's really important that you do this obedience. In fact, it's so important. This particular story, if we can say this, is that it's the spirit decided. Should we speak that way about the spirit's ministry and with Holy Scripture three times. We'll put this in front of the church. <coughs> Interesting that John's Gospel doesn't, uh, there's a story there somehow, John's Gospel does not include the Transfiguration story. Uh, that's an interesting fact. It's almost as if the whole Gospel of John feels like a Transfiguration story in a sense. But there you go. Three times this story is put in front of the um, in front of the church for, for reading uh, and on occasion for its public reading. The fact that, the scripture, that, that this action back in a hill country, this divine action with witnesses surrounding it, 
and the fact that it takes a written form is almost taken for granted. I, I think I do. I, I have, I'm casual. I, I, I own a few Bibles. I hope maybe you do. I, well, I can pick up this one. Oh, Jerusalem Bible today, RSV, New English, whatever. You know, I said, but the Word of God has taken a written form. Almost, again, um, take that for granted. It seems important to remember, I need to be reminded at least, that, uh, again, here's another theological assertion. I hope in the discussion time you can tell me if these are... Um, a wise, unwise, better stated, whatever, but scripture is a part of the mystery of salvation. Do we really remember that as often as we should? Again, I, I have Bibles, I pick it up, read it. And maybe I belong to a group, we read it together. People would listen to scripture. But scripture is part of the very mystery of salvation itself. That's why Paul says, attend to it. Read it. Read, mark, learn. Inwardly digest it, says a wise man from the 16th century. Uh, remember Jesus Christ, Paul says. Attend to reading, if I may abbreviate his words a bit. Attend to reading. Revelation, again, is the eloquence of divine action. It has taken a written form. How we should attend to it, therefore. We're doing that this morning. Peter, to continue on in the story in front of us, Peter, I always want to call him as I get older, dear, dear Peter, the apostle. And again, I, do you ever think of the apostles as our brothers in Christ? Peter's my brother in Christ. I hope you think of him as he's your brother in Christ. Dear, dear Peter, he is in this story big time, isn't he? Peter shows up in the gospel so frequently. He's an important guy in the mystery of salvation himself, isn't he? This eloquence from heaven is in front of us, as uh, Mr. Webster would remind us, but you may have noticed in the reading, Peter is not eloquent. No, Peter is not eloquent. Peter often puts his foot famously, puts the foot right in the mouth. Waking from sleep with James and John, he sees this glory in front of him. What a privileged fellow Peter was to be called to be uh, such an intimate witness to the mystery of our Lord. Wakes up from sleep with his buddies. This implies, I think, that it was a long time our Lord was in prayer. It gave Peter, James, and John time to nap. Apparently, he fell asleep. And as he wakes up famously, he immediately decides that the best thing to do is to suggest to his Lord that uh, three tents or three shrines or three somethings should be built to uh, remember this uh, a remarkable moment. Perhaps it was to freeze, if you will, the moment, right? This is, this is important, Jesus. We better uh, do something to remember it. Shall we? Three tents, three shrines, three remembering places where we'll, we'll remember that you and Moses and Elijah were talking. This divine action perhaps has overwhelmed him. I wonder if I would have fainted if I'd seen such a thing. There it is. Peter, not eloquent. 
He wants to freeze the moment. Peter speaks, Luke says, does Luke have a sense of humor, do you think? Peter speaks, he says, not knowing what he said. That often happens in life. You ever caught your, this wouldn't happen to people like you, but it has to me on occasion. I talk and I, it's pointed out to me later that I didn't really know what I was talking about. But my mother used to say that to me on occasion. This is no passing detail when a theologian, again, theorize, uh, uh, unpacks it with some, uh, some uh, theological pondering. And again, the, the, the unfolding of Scripture will take another form of discourse from Scripture uh, if, if theorizing is the right word. Uh, a theological discourse that helps us attend to Scripture. Again, no passing detail that Peter speaks, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. Much speech about transcendence is, of course, void of meaning. Our culture right now is filled with talk about transcendence. Uh, our culture famously now, point out the obvious, loves spirituality. And there's a lot to talk about it. But probably we can safely say humbly, and perhaps um, with a sense of disappointment, that most of it's noise. It's speech, but we don't know what we're talking about. Uh, the world of transcendence has been ruled out of order, in fact, in our culture. Speak, speech about it is out of order. It cannot be known in our realm. Since the Enlightenment, that world is just unknown. That's why we become deists, a God who maybe started things, but we have no knowledge of him here below. And then deism naturally becomes atheism. Since we can't say anything about him, why don't we just say he's not there? <coughs> but we still love spirituality, so we do a lot of talk about spiritual things. Sometimes language simply as uh, Wittgenstein, a Alexander said I should quote the odd philosopher, Wittgenstein, I think it's a very helpful metaphor. Sometimes language just, he says, idols. It's like a machine that's supposed to take a car somewhere, but sometimes it just idles. It's not going anywhere. Language idols. That's a very, happens all the time when people speak. Um, we have heard again that revelation is the um, eloquence of divine action. Further, we can say, this will get back to Peter in a moment, revelation is a majestic act of God's freedom, says a theologian. That's why the word freedom is in front of us now. Revelation is a majestic act of God's freedom. We couldn't command the transfiguration moment to happen. It's an act of the divine transcendent mystery of God deciding in his mysterious freedom to do this. Revelation is a majestic act of God's freedom. Tend to the reading of scripture because it will tell you what God in his freedom has done to speak to us out of his majestic uh, holiness. We do not, see this gets you back to Peter, we do not step forward as equal dialogue partners with God. But God establishes us as knowers. I love that little phrase. God establishes us as knowers about what we're supposed to know about God. That's what the whole mystery of Israel and Jesus and the church is all about. Salvation history is what God wants us to know 
but what he's doing with his errant creation, now he's going to bring it back to himself. He's given us understanding. God establishes us as knowers. We don't reason cleverly here about God and say, oh yeah, that's what God must be like. No, God will establish us as knowers. Peter, you see in this story, what is what Peter? What should Peter have done? Do we dare to see that? Does, does this passage inform us about this sort of thing? Peter just needed apparently to wait. He didn't need to speak about his own guesswork knowledge about what's going on here, Lord. He just needed to wait for God to establish him as a knower. But he needed, he blurted out his own knowledge about what's going on here. This moment, um, this moment uh, in scripture, the transfiguration, is one of those moments in scripture which evidently uh, unites the testaments, doesn't it? It's a beautiful uniting of the testaments. I love this kind of thing when it happens. Simply, as we see here, Jesus with Moses and Elijah. He's not with Socrates and Plato or Aristotle. He's with Moses and Elijah. Remember Jesus Christ, descended from David, Paul says. He's part of Israel's story. He's Israel's Messiah. He's, in fact, Israel's meaning. He becomes Israel for Israel, Israel's God, if you will. So remember that. Moses and Elijah commune with Jesus on the Mount of Trans, uh, on the, this Mount of Transfiguration, concentrated, abbreviated pictures or symbols of the whole Bible are in Scripture, um, and I find them very helpful, very probing. They're, they really bring the whole horizon of, uh, of Scripture uh, before our eyes. I, I, I love it when it's done from the pulpit. I love when teaching moments, when, when, when this sort of thing happens. It's lovely to see, I hope you'll agree, the whole horizon of Scripture is suddenly there in front of you. It's beautiful. I love it. I've heard marvelous moments in pulpits. Maybe Harry Robinson used to talk about the three trees of Scripture in the garden, the cross, and then the tree that heals the nations in the apocalypse. Uh, a, a vision, there's the whole story. God is telling us a whole story. The Bible's not just little fragments of this and that. It's one big story that God is telling us. Um, again, I find them very, very helpful. Jean de Lubac, again, I'm supposed to quote people, so I'll do it again. A great Jesuit thinker who was, he's said to be the big, one of the big minds behind Vatican II. Wonderful Jesuit, great believing man. You read his writings he he he. Um, one of his um, one of his um, somewhere in his writings, he he uh, puts together the testaments by just simply talking about Babel, the Tower of, which is the very picture on abbreviate. He uses that word abbreviated. I find it very helpful. The abbreviated symbol of how sin and rebelling against God brought judgment on the nations, and at Babel the nations were, dis were dispersed in confusion. They couldn't act together anymore. They're broken up. But then at Pentecost, the nations hear the gospel, 
these scattered nations, in abbreviated form, Pentecost announces that God is going to bring the nations back together again. So Babel, Tower of, and Pentecost unite unite the, uh, the, the testaments. Find that that's another beautiful picture of what our God's doing. He throws the nations into confusion, but then again, in abbreviated symbolic form, he announces at Pentecost, I'm bringing the nations back together. His judgment will be, will be followed by mercy, if you will. Peter at Pentecost, finally back to Peter, at Peter, Peter at Pentecost is indeed eloquent. He's been transformed. He didn't know what to say on the Mount of Transfiguration, but at Pentecost, he knew what to say. At Pentecost, dear, dear Peter is the Lord's obedient service, a servant, and he is eloquent. He announces to the nations, God is now bringing you back together. That's, that's an amazing transformation that has occurred in, um, in, in this dear uh, man, Peter. Tom Wright sees, as I've never come across the picture of that uh, um, in a writer, uh, the, how the, the testaments are united. And Tom Wright's de depiction of things in the New Testament does it for me as, w with great power. He sees the united of the Testaments as, as, as at the very center of the gospel, which is an obvious truth. The Lord's death is indeed the perfection of the exodus. Moses and Elijah speak to him about his death, his exodus. He's going to take the exodus story and reveal its true meaning. He will perfect the exodus story on the cross as indicated quite clearly in this story they spoke to him about his exodus about his death right unfolds the mis this mystery with deep insight it seems to me christ crucified is israel going into her final exile what did israel cry out to god it's all over the place in scripture when she was in exile she cries out why have you forsaken us that's what Jesus cried out on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? He's Israel crying out again. Why have I been abandoned? But it's a deeper abandonment, a deeper exile. It's the fulfillment of the exile motif in scripture. Why have you forsaken me? Christ raised is Israel finally come into her perfect obedience. Her covenant obedience is perfected by Jesus. Yes, the 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 all the New Testaments are woven right together. Their very meaning is woven together. Jesus perfects the Israel story. Remember, Jesus Christ descended from David. Those are not idle words from the apostle. Never, never abstract Jesus out of the story of Israel, out of the Old Testament mystery. Otherwise, you'll get him wrong. He'll become a Jesus of mystical pursuit or something. It's all over the place in our culture. People talk about, oh, I, the Jesus idea, the Jesus mystery. It abstracts him from Israel and therefore it begins to get him wrong badly, very badly. I won't, I won't um, talk any more about Tom Wright other than saying that he does in one place in his writings, this is from a memory, but I clearly remember he thinks when he looks at the transfiguration story,
traditionally, and it's not a bad tradition to hold on to, I would think, but it's traditionally thought, oh, well, when we see the transfiguration, that there we have proof that Jesus is divine, right? He's altered, his, his uh, clothing goes ablaze. He talks with long dead Old Testament mighty figures like Moses and Elijah. Wright thinks that's probably wrong. What we really see on the Mount of Transfiguration is, if it's not overstating his point here, I might be a bit, I don't think so, what we're really seeing is our own future. The, the point of Jesus transfigured is there is the future of humanity. Here is the Son of Man beginning to be unveiled in front of his witnesses. There is the second Adam, if you will, uh, being revealed in his glory. It's the revelation of what humanity is called to be and will be. Uh, when all things are perfected in Christ. Uh, uh, there we are prefigured. The second Adam again is here. Moving right along. Peter, in the story you'll recall, I should have noted my um, uh, verse numbers for easy looking. You'll notice though that Peter, now uh, the uneloquent Peter is simply interrupted on the Holy Mount. Um, God will sometimes interrupt people. It's a nice thought, I think. We've all met people who would be fun to interrupt them, but maybe not courteous. But God interrupts Peter. I don't think he goes far as he says to Peter, be quiet. But God will interrupt Peter. It is the Holy Mount, by the way. It's in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 18, where Peter recalls a, a Petrine tradition, I think it was Peter himself, recalls this mighty event and calls it, we were on the holy mount there. He calls it holy mount. As he was saying these things, dear Peter, as he was saying these things, Luke tells us, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Uh, Luke tells us for sure they were and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him, says uh, the father of our Lord, the God of Israel. Listen to him. A variation on, if you will, attend to the public reading of Scripture. The witness to Jesus Christ has taken a written form. It's part of the mystery of salvation. When you spend time today with an inadequate leader looking at a passage of Scripture, you're doing something really important. We're called to do this. That's what the church's liturgies and hymnody and prayer is saturated with Scripture. It should be, it has to be. Attend to the public reading of Scripture. They were afraid, says Luke. Understatement. Peter, again, is interrupted. Um, in modern forms of spirituality, just to... Um, Look at that point again. I think it's worth emphasizing. These things are simply unknown. Uh, more, more than that, they are, rec uh, are rejected. A God who would interrupt me during my spirituality quest? Yeah, God might interrupt you. We hear a lot, like, what's your spirituality? What's your, what's your beliefs about the Christ? And no, we're to attend to what God says. Read scripture, Paul says. Attend to it. That is God speaking. 
let God, if you will, I say to myself, interrupt me. A lot of thoughts about God. My mind idles. I need to hear what God says about God. That's the way the church lives. Mm, There it is. I am encouraged to believe uh, in our culture that I am indeed quite adequate to speak about divine mysteries. It's... um, it's all over the place in bookstores, TV shows, spirituality galore everywhere. But revelation, you see the importance of a, a good theologian in talking with the church. Revelation is an act of God's freedom to speak. God's very freedom. I like is it Ian Proven who generalizes, I think it's Ian Proven who says somewhere that God has revealed that he is dangerous to approach. He can interrupt you and make you afraid, as he did on this occasion. God's dangerous to approach. But in God's unthinkable love and grace, he has given us a way to approach him. I am the way, says the transfigured one on this mount. I am the way to God. He's dangerous to approach, but I am the way to approach him. God is the way to approach a God, if you will. Um, I am the way, says this one on the mount. So today, I'm glad the time is um, pretty good for us. It's moving along. but So today I just wanted to talk about, if you will, with you, reading Scripture. Um, there is, I find this kind of language helpful. I hope you do. There is what can be called an act of reading scripture. It's intentional. It's a set-apart activity. It's something, Paul says, to attend to. There's a public reading of scripture, perhaps in your own life. There's a scholarly reading of scripture sometimes, historical critical issues such as they are. But there's, for the believer, a prayerful, humble, teachable act of reading scripture Lord teach me there's an act of reading scripture that we should be aware of that can be um, unfolded first off as um, reading is attentiveness think about when you read something it's when it's important it's attentiveness um, Mr. Um, Webster will go so far and I think he's right the more you think about it The essence of attentiveness is abandonment. Um, Do we intend to abandon ourselves and allow something like the transfiguration story to envelop us and to speak to us in its profundity? It is, oh, I like that passage of scripture. No, it's not that, oh, I like it. It's, I am enveloped by it. I attend to it. It properly understood, not to merely dramatize. I abandon myself to this reading. This is God speaking. Revelation is the eloquence of divine action. Am I listening to this eloquence? God's eloquence speaks to us. Attend to the public reading of Scripture. Keep it's the to Israel was given the privilege of bearing the oracles of God. 
in the world. Amazing. The gospel, therefore, is a kind, as I draw to a close, the gospel is a kind of a shock, as it was to Peter. Wow, I'll build three booths for you. Shut up, Peter. Listen to God speaking. It's a shock. It's an interruption. We are both, we are meant to be both perplexed and delighted by the mystery of the gospel. I like that thought. Don't be, don't be too worried if sometimes the gospel and scripture perplexes you. God is a bit perplexing for folks like us. We've stepped away from God's ways. And scripture is, in a certain sense, agonistically fighting us back into a relationship with him. So there's an, uh, a fighting about these things. We need to be interrupted and delight again in these amazing things. Karl Barth is quoted as saying, I th- theological intelligence, there's a man who spent his life attempting theological intelligence, theological intelligence is no more than a deepened form of reading. Do you want to be theologically intelligent, for hopefully for good reasons? So you can know and love God more? Well, it's a deepened form of reading, theological intelligence. There you go. Just a footnote or two. First John chapter 1 opens with the words, that which was from the beginning. I should open this up here. That, do you remember how First John opens? That which was from the beginning. I got it here. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it. Hear those words, heard, looked upon, seen with our eyes. The eternal life which was with the Father he goes on to say in one John, made manifest to us. That's what we're, those words describe the kind of event that the transfiguration story was. They went up onto a a little hill country area and they saw the Lord transfigured. They saw. Sometimes philosophers help with this kind of thing, maybe not often. This is not the language of explanation. It is the language of perception. That which we have seen. I don't have an argument for you, but I have a witness. That which we have seen. Isn't that amazing? The whole gospel is a form of witness. God has ordained that it should be that way. Not an argument. There's a lot of arguing that goes on about the gospel, its truth, its claims, a a plethora of things. But at its core, at its basic um, presence in the world, it's a witness. It's a witness, as Richard Bauckham says, to a novum, an N-O-V-U-M. An utterly unique, staggering thing happened in Palestine 2,000 years ago. A man named Jesus was there. And ever since, things have been changing in the world. A church has gone around the world. A witness to him just continues. And it contains things like the transfiguration story. God acts. 
He forms witnesses to see the act. He calls witnesses around the act. And he gives the gift of a, of a written witness uh, to it all, which we today have been given by God's grace um, a moment or two to attend to, attend to the public uh, reading of scripture. This divine action is God's free act. God freely chose that on a given day in Vancouver, a group of people would attend to his word. We're part of God's divine act. We are not blundering ones like Peter, demanding to get it straight on our terms. God calls a people because of his witness, and we're, we are now responding to the witness. We now uh, stand here in belief. Inadequate, fumbling, hopefully growing, but it's a good thing. Tend to the public reading of scripture. One last footnote. There's always, I'm, I'm, I learned this from Jim Packer. You don't say footnote, I'll add another footnote. Um, sometimes you become elated by things like this. Okay, okay, I got, I got the message today. I'm going to go, I'm going to start memorizing maybe the whole New Testament or I'll, I'll memorize the book of Isaiah this coming weekend. Well, those are good intentions. Uh, I, I feel elated sometimes by in, good intentions, but elation, Peter Taylor Forsyth says, is misleading. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, Paul says. The divine word comes and meets guys like Harvey, who's, as you know, getting old. You know, his mind's going a bit. His body's weakening. He hardly remembers one thing. How does a weak little guy like me, well, God's grace will speak this mystery into an earthen vessel like me. His church is an earthen vessel. It's messy. It's, but the divine word, the eloquence of it still works in us. So we attend to the public reading of scripture. That's all I wanted to do today with you. It's an honor to attend the public, the public reading of scripture with you and a few, um, a few moments of pondering it together. So it's 10 to 10, methinks, if that's the right time up there in the wall. So, um, Lord, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you for putting your word in front of us. And uh, may we always uh, treasure this treasure in the earthen vessels that we are. We thank you, Lord. And we, our God and Father, we pray in our, the name of our, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.